Lord, um, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your precious word, Lord. We thank you that you have revealed yourself in it and who you are, your nature, your love for us, uh, your will for us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that uh, your word's powerful and that it does work in our hearts and in our lives. And so we ask this morning that you would continue to do that. And I, I specifically ask, Lord, that you'd remove my agenda, Lord, my ideas. No, people aren't here to hear from me, Lord. They're here to hear from you. And so we pray that we would encounter you this morning and that you would bless this time in your word and that you would uh, bless our time of fellowship after as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, so John chapter 4. Um, just a couple things about the author of this book, John. So this, this is the Apostle John. So not to be confused with John the Baptist, two different Johns. So this is also uh, the John who his brother is James. And, and if you read through the, uh, the Gospels, you're, you're going to hear him referred to as him and his brother as the sons of thunder. They were the sons of Zebedee. He's also one of Jesus' close three so you see Jesus has 12 disciples, right, that, you know, that he's training up to send out later. But we see that very often as, you, as we read about Jesus' ministry, you see Peter, James, and John going everywhere with, with Jesus. And he also gives himself the title actually in this book of the disciple whom Jesus loved. He calls himself that, which I kind of think maybe some of the other disciples roll their eyes at that one, right? Like, oh, of course. Um, he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote the book of Revelation when he was exiled at the uh, island of Patmos. And he wrote this gospel really to complement the others. So you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, and then John writes his to kind of fill in some of those gaps. And John actually gives us the reason why he wrote this entire gospel of John. It's in John twenty thirty one. should be up there for you. And he says, but these are written, speaking of, of, of his eyewitness testimony here, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that's the reason that John writes this book. And obviously, we're jumping into chapter four, so there's some, there's some things going on before all this. So to give you some context, just a couple chapters before this, in, in chapter two, we see Jesus perform his first miracle at that wedding in Cana in Galilee, right? You guys know the story of, you know, they're at this wedding and the wedding coordinator tells Jesus' mom, like, we're, you know, we're out, of, we're out of wine, which is obviously a huge party foul, right? You don't run out of wine at a, a wedding, especially back then. And so, so Jesus' mom's like, go do what he tells you. And Jesus is like, that's not my time. Like, what do, you, what do you want me to do? But like a good son, he obeys his mom, right? And he tells him, go fill these, these big jugs up with water. And then the wedding coordinator tastes the water. And he's like, whoa, you saved the, the best wine for last. You shouldn't, shouldn't have done that, right? So that happened in chapter 2. In, in chapter 3, just the chapter just before this, he has that interaction with Nicodemus. Another famous story where we see Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, comes to Jesus in secret at night. And he's like, we kind of, you know, we, I know you're from God, but he was afraid that people would see him, right? And, and there's this awesome back and forth where he, Jesus loves on Nicodemus and ultimately brings him to him. And so we jump, we pick up in chapter four after this has happened. So go ahead and look at your, your Bible with me there. Uh, we'll read the first four verses. And it says this. <clears throat> now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So we'll stop right there for a second. So there's some things going on. There's some shifting happening. 
So you had John the Baptist who comes on the scene, right? And he's making, making way for Jesus, right? That was his whole ministry, was to make paths straight for the Lord, for Jesus Christ. And he was very clear. He said, there's somebody coming soon that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And he, and he basically says, this is the Messiah. But during that time, obviously, John, he gains some followers, some disciples. They start following after John. Jesus comes on the scene, his ministry starts to pick up, and then people are kind of like, oh, is this the guy that John was talking about? Now they're starting to follow Jesus. And then kind of hanging back are the the Pharisees who are kind of watching what's happening, right? And so the whole, the the reasoning behind why Jesus says, I got to get out of town and head north, there's a few different theories. I think the thing that makes the most sense is that, um, it wasn't Jesus' time to have conflict with the Pharisees, and is their kind of, you know, they have their eye on him. Maybe things are getting a little bit tense. We see him say, eh, no, we're not, gonna, we're, not, we're not going there right now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip town. And we see him do that actually other times in, in the Gospels where things get a little, little tense with the Pharisees, and, and he withdraws. So um, the other interesting verse there is it says there in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria. So there's a, and some of you guys may know this, but there's a long history between the Jews and the Samaritans. So in the Old Testament, just to give you a little history here, um, right after Solomon's death and his son was trying to take over as king, the, there was some political unrest and the kingdom of Israel was split in two. So you had the southern kingdom of Judah and you had the northern kingdom of Israel. And what ended up happening in about 722 or so is the Assyrians came in and they actually conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They actually took those ten tribes that were in the north, and they, they took them into exile, and they removed them from that land. And what they did is they actually repopulated that land with other people that they had conquered, and some of their own people. And, of course, there's still some, um, some of the, the Jews living there. And so what ends up happening over time is they start to intermarry and have children. And then what ends up happening is it produces these Samaritans who were essentially half-breeds. And so there's this tension between the pure Jews in the south and the half-breed Samaritans in the north. And so there's this thing going on here where, where it says he had to pass through Samaria, and there should be a map up here actually. And Jesus did, did not physically have to pass through Samaria. As you can see, the red line is the direct path from Judea where Jesus and his disciples were up to Galilee up north. And the, the, the straight shot is right through Samaria. But because of this enmity that existed between the Jews in the south, the pure Jews in the south, and the Samaritans in the north, there were some Jews, you know, we maybe would call them radical Jews or pious Jews of the time, that would say, no, I'm not going to take this path through Samaria. I don't want to deal with these guys. They're unclean. I want nothing to do with them. I'm going to take one of these alternate routes around Samaria. And they were longer, less efficient. But there was so much of an issue there that they would avoid any contact with them. But Jesus says, no, we're going. And it says he had to go through Samaria. We could see he didn't have to physically. But I think it's clear that he had an appointment, a divine appointment with this, with this woman here. So Jesus decides to go right on through Samaria. So let's look at verse 5 here. It says, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. 
for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus and his disciples, they, they come into town. It says it's about the sixth hour, so it's about noon or so. So really kind of the, maybe the hottest point of the day. So Jesus sits at the well. Obviously, he's probably tired, thirsty. Sends his disciples in to get some food. And he's sitting there, and this woman comes out. And she's going to draw water at noon. And so Jesus says, hey, can I get a drink? It seems on its face very insignificant, right? But we already know what's existing between them with this Jesus being a Jew and her being a Samaritan. But, a, but even more, there's more layers. In that ancient context, men didn't often talk to women in public. Not only that, but Jesus was a rabbi. And if you were a rabbi, you especially didn't talk to women in public. Many times they didn't even talk to their wives or their, or their, their daughters in public. I actually have a, a quote from William Barclay, who's a commentator on this, and he says, speaking about this very thing, he says, the strict rabbis forbade a rabbi to greet a woman in public. A rabbi might, might not even speak to his own wife or daughter or sister in public. And listen to this. There were even Pharisees who were called the bruised and the bleeding Pharisees because they shut their eyes when they saw a woman on the street. And so they walked right into walls and houses. So you have all these layers of stuff there. And then if, if, you, if that's not enough, you look at what time this woman's coming to draw water. It's noon. It's the hottest point of the day. If we had a choice, we wouldn't go there at noon to draw water. So why is she coming at noon to draw water? Well, most people were coming in the morning. If they were going to get water for their family or for their livestock or whatever, they're coming in the morning or at twilight. She's coming at noon because she's banking on nobody being there. And what we learn about this woman is that Jesus talks to her later and says, where's your husband? And she goes, I don't, I don't, I don't have a husband. And he says, yeah, you, you're right, you've had five. And the man that you're with now is not your husband. So we hear that she probably doesn't have the best reputation in the community. So you have all these things going on. She's a Samaritan, he's a Jew, he's a rabbi. She's known as maybe not this maybe an unsavory character. So what was going on? Was Jesus just, you know, ignorant of, what was, of all these things? Was he like, I don't know, I'm God. I just came here, you know, a few years ago, and I don't know these things. I'm ignorant of these things. No, not at all, right? He knows these things exist. But this is an incredible picture as Jesus takes these, these barriers and this oppression that really is the result of sinful man, and hard hearts, and he takes aim, pushes right through it, and takes aim at her heart. He doesn't care. He, just, he always has a much grander perspective and plan. And I, I, can't, I can't help but think about what we have going on in our society, in our country, right? The social unrest, racial tensions, all this different stuff that's happening. I think we can learn a little bit from Jesus here is Jesus is doesn't look down and see what's happening and say, it doesn't matter, I don't care, I'm apathetic to it. What Jesus knows is that it's only through transformed hearts that anything changes. It's the only way. 
I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole too far, but let's keep reading. So, Jesus, so, so this woman asked Jesus this question as she's stunned here about Jesus even talking to her. In verse 10, Jesus tells her, um, he answered and it says, if, he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus doesn't answer her question. He doesn't even acknowledge this whole thing about Jew, Samaritan, blah, blah, blah. He just kind of does what Jesus does, and he goes all Yoda on her, right? I'm going to give you this living water. It's like, what? Like, what are you, what are you talking about, right? What is, what is he getting at? What's living water? I think we, we kind of understand he's kind of tweaking this conversation now. He's taking it kind of a, down a spiritual path. And I think we understand to a point what living water is, but what is he getting at? Um, just a couple chapters later, he lays it out a little bit more. John seven thirty-seven through 39. This is Jesus speaking at um, the Feast of Tabernacles. He's there in, in, among all these people, and he stands up at the last day of the feast, and he yells this out, and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So when he's talking about living water, he's specifically talking about the Holy Spirit, the the gift of the Holy Spirit and being indwelt by this Holy Spirit. That's exactly what he's talking about. And when he talks about Jesus not yet being glorified, we know if we keep reading, when Jesus ascends to heaven in Acts, right, he goes and to be glorified with the Father, and then he tells his disciples, wait in Jerusalem, and we see in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit. So this is what Jesus is, is referencing here, is this giving of the Holy Spirit. So what's the, um, what's the woman's response here? Let's look at verses 11 and 12 there. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So the, she's obviously not picking up what he's putting down, right? He's, she's not quite understanding what Jesus is talking about. And I think, you know, when she brings up this thing about Jacob, I think she's kind of, maybe she has an idea that he's kind of making some radical claims of, you know, who is this guy? Is he a prophet? Like, he's is he talking about water? Like, what's going on? And so he's like, she's like, are you greater than Jacob, our father Jacob, who built this well? And if you, if you search out this, this term living water a little bit too, um, in the Old Testament, which she would have been familiar with some of the Old Testament scriptures, um, G- God the Father is actually referred to as a you know, fountain of living waters in Jeremiah 2.13. Uh, this is Jeremiah speaking, prophesying, saying, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So we see she could have been familiar with this, but either way, what's going on here, in my opinion, it's, it's clear, is that she just lacks the spiritual eyes to see what Jesus is saying. She doesn't have the spiritual awareness to do that. And Paul talks about this, and you know, because at the end of the day, spiritual... Think, spiritual truths need to be spiritually discerned. And if we don't have the Spirit living in us, we can't discern those things. And that's what's happening with this woman. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul talks about this exact thing. He says, the, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, 
and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the fact that, you know, Jesus is talking about these things and she's not grasping it shouldn't, shouldn't be much of a surprise to us. So Jesus tries again. So he's going to break it down a little further. Look at verses 13 and 14. So Jesus says to her, Okay, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus, is, Jesus says, okay, listen, this water that you're, you're getting here, I'm not talking about this water. You're going to come back here again tomorrow, the next day, and the next day after that because you're going to be thirsty again and again and again. What I'm talking to you about is this spiritual water that is there to quench the thirst of your soul. That's what he's getting at, right? And as I was thinking about um, a little bit more about this living water and how it works and what it is, I came up with kind of three things that I want to point out today about this living water. The first thing, and it should be up on the screen there, is that every human, every human being thirsts for it. Every human being thirsts for it. There's a Holy Spirit-sized hole in the heart of every man and every woman. And just like this woman, many of us, we drink from the waters of all kinds of different things before we come to this living water, don't we? Yeah. And this woman, as we talked about, she's got five husbands. The man she's living with now is not her husband. So she's attempting to drink from the water of, you know, love. She's, she's, she's trying to find love, companionship, affirmation in these relationships. And it's not quenching her thirst. And oftentimes we do the things, the same things, even before we come to Christ and even after we come to Christ. We drink from the waters of, you name it, right? Money. Entertainment, sex, busyness, you could go on and on and on. It's not until we drink from the, that living water that Jesus is talking about here that he offers through his Holy, Spirit, his Holy Spirit that we're able to be filled and satisfied and at peace. The second point up there is, so the first point is that every human thirsts for it. The second point is that it's continually available so this fountain of water that is in us, it's not just something we drink from one time and it's like, I hope this is enough for you. It's a fountain of living water. It's continually available. Um, but once we receive the Holy Spirit and we give our hearts to Christ, does that mean that we never struggle again? No, right? Does it mean, does it mean that we never struggle with feeling empty or feeling unrest or feeling like something's missing that's not the case at all, right? We know that our hearts are prone to wander. We're, we're still attached to these sinful nature and we deal with difficulties and trials and feelings, feeling stagnant in your faith, feeling dry in your faith. It's not uncommon at all. The beautiful thing about this living water that is that it's a spring or your, your Bible may say a, a river or a fountain of living water that continually flows so that we're able to continually come back and drink from that fountain and be refreshed again and again and again. And that sounds, I think everybody's like, that sounds great. Like, I, I would love to do that. But actually, how do we actually do that? I get the truth, but practically, how do I go and access these living waters? I'm glad you guys asked that. So I'm going to give you a list within a list. So just stay with me, okay? So we're still on point two here. 
One of the, so there's four things that came to mind. How do we access these living waters? The first thing is to get in his word. Get in God's word. I know it seems simple, and I'm preaching to myself when I say this, but get in God's word daily. It's the way that we're nourished. It's the way that we, we, we eat spiritually. Matthew 4.4, 4, it says that man shall not live, this is Jesus speaking, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This was Jesus' response to Satan when he was being t- tempted in the desert. So get in his word. Intentionally worship. Be intentional about your worship. When we worship God, we're entering into the purpose for which we were created. And when we worship God truly, our souls are refreshed. Our souls are blessed. Psalm 102 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. The third one is authentic community. Coming to church like you are today, consistently, and beyond that, getting together in smaller groups where you can live openly and honestly with one another, where you can be built up and encouraged and supported. And I wish we offered something like that as a church. Don't you? Oh, yeah, we do. They're called life groups. Shameless plug, so make sure you get in one. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the last thing, but certainly not least, is to pray. Pray. I don't think there's, there's, there's probably not anybody in here, if I were to ask the question, and don't raise your hand, but if I were to ask the question, who feels like they need to pray more? They need to be better at prayer. We'd all say, me, right? This is the basis for our relationship with God. It's the way we communicate with him. It's the way that we enter into his presence. Devote yourself to prayer and to regular communication with God. And that's one of the keys to daily drinking and taking of that, that living water. And we see that Jesus was a, was a pro at this, right? He withdrew all the time intentionally to go be with the Father in prayer, realign himself with his will, be refreshed. We should do those things. So get in his word, intentionally worship, authentic community, and pray. Do those sound familiar, by the way? At least those first three? (laughs) They should, because those are the values of our church. So I stole them from the website, just so you know. Uh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, speaking of prayer, and this is a famous verse, says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be, be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses, surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So back to the first list, okay? So I said that every human being thirsts for it, that it's a continual thing that we can access. And the third thing is that it should bring life to those around us. Speaking of this living water, it should bring life to those around us. When God puts his spirit in you and you have that fountain of living water flowing, it's not just for you. It's meant to flow out into our lives and, to, and, and onto those around us. Brett's always used that illustration of the, the pitcher, cup, saucer, plate, right? This is what he's talking about. You take this water that's the Holy Spirit, this never-ending water that comes from him, and when we're accessing it, it's pouring into us, the cup, and into the li- our families and into our friends and into those areas of influence and into the people that are all around us. So this, this, this living water that is present in the life of a Christian is meant to bring salt and light and life to those all around us as well. So Jesus goes real in-depth with this woman and says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about this water. I'm talking about this spiritual water, this living water. 
And so finally the woman, the light bulb goes off, right? She's like, yeah, got it, right? Look at verse 15, no. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. (laughs) So Jesus, he tries a couple times, right? And she's like, this would be amazing if I didn't have to come back here every day with a pouch or a bucket and and I I could avoid people. Tell Tell me what this is all about. And again, this woman, you know, like, like Nicodemus before her, is not wrapping her brain around what's going on. She's back to her physical needs, right? Nicodemus, same thing. If you read the chapter before, Jesus tells him, Nicodemus, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, okay, but how do I get back into my mom's womb and be born again, right? And Jesus is like, no, right? And I think it's easy for us to kind of shake our, our, our head at this woman and kind of like laugh and um, so, like, how are they so dense? You know, you look at the, the disciples, too. Nicodemus, the disciples, we talk about it often when we're reading the stories from our perspective now. We're like, how do they not get what Jesus is doing? But before you, you're, you get too hard on them, if we take a step back and look at this story, and we say, who are we in the story? Who am I? Am I, am I Jesus being so nice to this woman? Or am I the disciples going to get food? Oh, because I serve, right? No. We're the woman. We're the woman in the story. Bad news for you. It's true. Think about it, right? We talked earlier about, you know, the barriers that Jesus broke down to reach this woman. And he's, if you've given your heart to Christ, anybody in here that's done that, he's done the exact same thing for you and for me. He broke through any barrier that was there. Our sin, our rejection, all the different obstacles in our life, even while we were still sinners, he grabs us and he saves us. He breaks through all those barriers. Additionally, for those of you who have been walking with the Lord for quite some time, we were talking about this woman's struggle to, to see with spiritual eyes. And often, for us, we struggle with the same thing as God is trying to lead us. And as we walk, as he's trying to transform us, we don't see what God's doing. We don't get it very often. It's hard, right? If you've been a Christian for any significant amount of time, you know that he uses the difficult things, right? The trials, failures, tragedies, weaknesses in our lives to put us in a position where essentially we have to cry out to him. We have to throw ourselves at his feet and say, I, I can't do it. It's not because he just enjoys putting us through really tough things. It's because those are the things that make us go to him and say, Lord, I need you. And when we do that, and he begins to walk us through these things, it starts to build our trust, and it starts to build our faith. And when those start to build, we start to be slowly transformed, slowly sanctified, slowly more like him. And then you start to notice very slowly, oh, he's changing the way I think. He's changing my wants, my desires, the way I speak to people, the way I approach situations. And it's it's that leaning on him through those difficult times that, that leads to our transformation but oftentimes, like the, this woman, in the middle of it, we struggle to see the work that God's doing, and we get stuck on the difficulties and the discomfort that it causes in our life. I'm guilty of it. Oftentimes, my prayer is not, God, transform me through this thing. My prayer is, God, take it away. Right? That's what my prayer is, very often. And as I said previously, that God always has a, much larger and grander plan, a larger perspective. And his plan is always 
going to be centered around transforming us into the image of his son. And that often means we're enduring difficult things so that he can refine those areas of sin and weakness in us. And one of the hard truths here is it's a hard truth for Christians to grasp and wrap their minds around sometimes, but God will always prioritize our spiritual growth over our physical comfort. He always does. And many people have struggled with that as they walk. Some people fall away and say, this is not for me. This, is what, this, is, this wasn't the promise that I received when I gave my heart to Christ. I thought things were going to be great. But that's not the end of the story. We'll talk about that in a second. Just to hammer the point home, turn, in your Bibles, turn to Mark 2 real quick. Mark 2. I'll give you guys a second to get there. I think this is an important point, so I'm, I'm beating a dead horse a little bit with this, but I think it's, I think it's worth it. So Mark 2, we'll read uh, 1 through 12. So this is another famous story where Jesus heals this, this paralytic, but there's a, an important point in here. So verse 1 says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof uh, above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So you guys have probably heard this story, right? But just imagine this, this picture here with all these people around this house where Jesus is. And these, these men hear about it and their friend who's, been, who's a paralytic clearly can't even walk, is laid out on a bed, and they're like, we just got to get our friend in front of Jesus. We just got to get Jesus to see him, to speak to him, to touch him, whatever it is. We, we need, we're going to do anything we need to do to get our friend in front of Jesus. And so what they do is they can't get through the front door, so they climb up onto the roof, and they rip the roof open, and they lower this guy in front of Jesus. Obviously assuming that he's going to heal him. And so Jesus sees this, and when Jesus saw their faith in verse 5 there, Mark uh, 2, 5, he says to them, to, to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. And you can see there's a little bit of a gap here, and we'll read the rest of it. But it, it was, this stuck out to me a long time ago, as I've kind of struggled with this truth of, like, life sometimes is tough as a Christian, as God is refining us and as, as God is transforming us. And, I, and this stuck out to me because Jesus addressed this man's spiritual condition before he addressed what was going on with his body, didn't he? He said, your sins are forgiven. And as we read further there, we keep reading in, uh, in verse uh, 6, it says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out from before them. And, uh, and they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So Jesus heals the man, but, we're, but, but it's clear he's doing it to validate his claim of forgiving the man's sins, right? And if we apply that to our experience as a Christian, does God always heal us? 
Does God always take away the, the issue that's going on in our life? Does he address those physical discomforts? Oftentimes, no, right? But one thing we know God will always do is forgive and continue to transform. That's what he continues to do. And the beautiful thing about that is we have this living water to come back to, this Holy Spirit that lives in us, that's our helper to come back to. When we're going through these things, when Jesus says, no, I know you're dealing with this tough thing. I know you have relational issues. I know your family's struggling. I know you're having financial issues. I know your health's not great. I see all these things. I know it. I'm not ignorant of it, but I'm using it to bring you to me because that's more important. And he says, but I'm not just leaving you on your own. You have the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit is there. This fountain of living water is there for you to come back to consistently to continue to drink from that living water. And as the story rolls on here back in in John 4, um, we see that Jesus and the woman start to banter back and forth about where the right place to worship is and Jesus kind of schools her on that. And as we jump forward into verses 25 and 26 of John 4 there, I'm skipping a section, ultimately Jesus reveals himself to this woman. And and 25, uh, it says, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called to Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And in verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I love that. So he looks the woman in the eye. He's like, yeah, that's me. This is what I've been trying to tell you this whole time. Right? And Jesus reveals himself, and it wasn't until he revealed himself to her that she's like, pop, it makes sense. She's able to spiritually discern what's happening because Jesus just revealed himself supernaturally to her there. As we kind of finish here this morning and start thinking about applying some of this, um, there's some of you in this room, I'm sure, that have never fully surrendered to Christ. You've never given your heart fully over to the Lord. And the invitation to you this morning, just like this woman, is that that living water is available to you today, right now. I'm sure that you've drank from the waters of the world for years, and you can, you can with experience, say, it's not, it's, it, it's not doing it for me. It doesn't quench my thirst. That This living water does. It's there, and the Lord is calling you today to give your heart to him fully. For those of you who have already given your heart to Christ and you just feel like, you know, you're, you're in the desert, you're disconnected from him, you feel a stagnancy in your faith, things are dry, you don't know what's going on, you're dealing with just one struggle after another. Remember, when you come to the Lord and he puts that spirit in you, that living water in you, you can access it continually. So come back to him. Come back to the Lord. Get into his word again. Come again to worship him. Come again and sit at his feet and pray. Get in community where you can be built up and encouraged and loved. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. you we thank you, Lord, that... Um, that you chase us, Lord, that you come after us and that you push through all the garbage in our lives and that you save us, Lord. There's so many stories. There's people in this room that can come up and tell one story after another similar to this woman that you pulled them out of their life of sin and you put your spirit in them and they, they now have this 
this, this fountain of living water in them. We thank you for that, Lord. And I just want to lift up anybody in here, Lord, that doesn't know you. And I just ask that you would, that you would speak to their hearts, Lord, that you would continue to work in them and that you would bring them ultimately to you. Lord, I want to lift up anybody who's just struggling, Lord. Anybody who feels that stagnancy, who feels like they, they haven't experienced you, they feel far away from you, Lord. I just pray, Lord, that you would ignite their passion for you once more, Lord. I pray that you would bring them near to you once more, that they would drink deeply from those living waters that are in them, Lord. And that you would bring them back to spiritual health and fullness, Lord. Lord, I thank you for this body of believers here this morning, Lord. We thank you for your precious word and who you are and for this amazing story and your love toward this woman and your love toward us. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus this morning. Everybody said? Amen. Amen.